Welcome everyone to the popular show, uh, the second episode thereof, uh, a, a weekly live stream every Wednesday about politics, populism, pop culture, other pop things, um, other things beginning with P. Um, and a great good welcome to everyone. How are you, James? I'm very well indeed, Alfie. Great to see you. Great to see Izzy. David, lovely to be back together. How are you, Izzy? All good, thank you. Lovely to see you all. Excellent. And David, I do care how you are, really. How are you? <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I, I, I feel the love from our from our listeners. I feel the love for the people on the YouTube and the people in the Zoom. Uh, I'm doing great. Big love Very to good. the YouTube viewers. People seem to be happy over there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening on YouTube. Thanks for joining us in the Zoom. And uh, welcome to this episode of The Popular Show. We're going to start with a bit of fun. Um, when we, we talk about the week's events, as we always do, we'd have a little um, discussion of what's been going on this week. And then uh, we welcome two, uh, two fantastic guests and uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter Hitchens, the right-wing Hitchens, uh, who uh, writes in the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday, as you know. James, tell us a bit about him. Well, um, Peter Hitchens is a, uh, is a conservative uh, author and journalist uh, writing in Britain. Um, he, he places himself outside the modern Conservative Party. So he's one of those sort of figure, sort of dissident figures of the right, if you like, for whom the actually existing right isn't getting it right. So um, I want to hear what he has to say about a few different topics, a few different kind of crucial, like if you like, cultural war issues of the time, like most of all, government's responses to COVID-19. Uh, and, to, and to lockdowns, uh, Peter has been a, 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 an opponent of lockdowns. So um, yeah. I don't know, it, it's going to be interesting getting the views of someone who is like, really opposed to us on all kinds of issues, really opposed to the, the left. But I, what I want to know is how does the right see the left and how does the right see itself? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And it'll be interesting to, to get this lockdown argument from, from somebody who's, who genuinely is uh, out there saying we should um, we should open up. Uh, and then after that, um, it'd be great to uh, looking forward very much to hearing from uh, Paul Clark, who's a barrister at uh, Garden Court Chambers and co-founder of the Global Legal Action Network, who's doing this case at the moment, a historic case, one of the biggest um, uh, about climate change, where um, essentially these activists have uh, forced major European governments to reconsider, uh, have, have uh, you know, filed a, a genuine case against, um, well, I think it's like all of the EU, isn't it, David, plus other countries? And and uh, what's happening with that? Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot going on with that. I think we're going to get into more of the details later. But one of the things I wanted to say is that um, there's a lot of criticisms that we're going to actually address of this suit. Uh, people are saying it's lawfare and should be in the, uh, in the, um, wheelhouse, not of the courts and not of barristers and not of uh, highly paid uh, uh, lawyers, uh, though I, I think when you talk to Paul, he can tell you a little bit how much he's being paid about it. And it's not. It's not a lot. Uh, it's, it's really about a labor of love and doing what's right for the world and doing what's right for the next generation of children. Um, so and I think if we've seen one thing, we've seen in action in the EU, in the United States, in Japan, in China, on climate change. Um, so these criticisms seem to ring hollow to me. So, uh, you know, politics by other names is known as law. So we'll see how that works. 
Awesome. Okay, fantastic. And that'd be that'd be fascinating. And before we do all that, we'll have a bit of fun. I, I think I hope talking about the week's topics. Um, and uh, what we're going to do each week now, we, we've been um, we've been uh, discussing what to do with our weekly our little uh, review of the week bit. What we're going to do is each of us is going to pitch something we think's been interesting this week or we think's worthy of talking about, uh, and then we're going to vote amongst ourselves uh, as to what is the thing we should actually bother to talk about from this week, and then we're going to bother to talk about it. And uh, you know, guests, patrons, thanks against patrons uh, are welcome to. Uh, um, in, tweet us uh, message us what topics they think we should be discussing in the weekly uh, roundup as well so over to you james for this uh yeah okay so I, i'm gonna sort of host this bit i want alfie izzy and david each to um pitch me a topic really quickly and then um then between us we're going to vote on it or maybe i'm just going to choose out of um, <laughs> out of the three topics so anything <laughs> we don't cover today we'll cover in future weeks but uh izzy what, what do you want to talk about so uh, I was reading this column in the FT on the weekend by John Flint, uh, former chief exec of HSBC, which, to paraphrase wildly, asks, will big tech fuck us like the banks did? Um, you know, in 2000, the 2005 financial crash, but so many of us because the, the banks were woven into all our lives. And so, um, you know, society was exposed to risks that hadn't been adequately communicated. As we know, people um, paid the price through government-backed bailouts. And so it was interesting to read about how, you know, as we've all seen today, warning signs are flashing again, but with tech giants, you know, this very small handful of companies that so much of the world relies upon. Um, and as we've seen with the pandemic, um, uh, highlighted our dependence on technology, you know, beyond Zoom calls like this, um, video doctor consultations, and in the UK, for, um, for those of us who've been applying for coronavirus tests, um, you, know, you only get one if you hand over your data to TransUnion, a US credit agency, and you can't get one unless you apply online in the first place. Um, you know, all of this um, is just highlighting how we need to manage disinformation, learn how to moderate content and expose biased algorithms. You know, the crash taught us the dangers of public interest being dependent on businesses that exist to meet the needs of private capital providers. And as we saw, regulators rely on banks governing themselves, and, which obviously failed, and so history any risks repeating itself now with big tech. David, what's your topic? What I'd like to talk about briefly is the uh, Obama memoir. Um, as someone who worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, I'm always interested in reading something from my uh, former boss, I guess. Uh, um, Obama's memoir is one of the most interesting in that it is actually one of the few memoirs that makes a person look worse in hindsight. Um, it's, it is the, it is the, uh, you know, uh, it's the opposite of his previous memoirs, which kind of were about building up his career. Uh, in his memoirs, he made himself look more violent, uh, made his, uh, his approach to college women in particular seem more creepy mm -hmm. and also, uh, used phrases like the ethereal bisexual in my sociology class. And I think that's, that's juicy. I think that's fun. And that's why that's my vote. Okay. And Alfie, what's your topic? I, I do want to talk about both those things, but I want to talk about football because um, Diego Maradona's dead and uh, Gaza will be dead soon too. So we should talk about these weird um, sort of uh, Lothario figures from the history of football who played in the tech. I, I want to hear about the tech bubble when we get Peter Hitchens <laughs> on. I want to do a, a whole section on Obama's memoir. What I want to do before Peter gets here is, uh, is hear about football. <laughs> okay, uh, so we've we, we, we got to we got to deal with Maradona <laughs> while it's up. 
So, so I've won, yeah. I've won the inaugural. Um, so we should also keep a tally of who who won. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's one nil in football terms uh, to me. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think this obviously the Maradona deaths massively in the news. I think there's some interesting things going on around that. I mean, we've seen it across Argentina and in other and in Italy mainly. You know, so many monuments, landmarks named after Maradona. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, and um, you know, but then of course we've seen a little bit of protest about this, and maybe maybe something touching on the cancellation of Maradona and some people refusing to do the one minutes uh, clapping or silence or whatever because you know he's probably a rapist and things like that, which I think is a pretty interesting starting point. But I've got more from the from football this week as well to to talk about, such as Rashford and philanthropy, Cavani and racism, things like that. But should we start with Diego himself? Any thoughts on him? So. Actually, I want to I want to just say quickly that as the American here is that there is a, there is a conception in the United States amongst many right wingers that so that the football is a or as soccer as we call it in the the less uh, less uh, sort of uh, refined places in the world uh, is actually a socialist plot. It is uh, as someone from the the American Enterprise Institute, Mark Thiessen, who is a little bit of a reactionary, once said, it's the only sport where you can't use your, the one thing that distinguishes us from animals, opposable thumbs. So <laughs> let's just start from the baseline that, that football is a socialist plot, and then we can get, kick it over to Meridon. <laughs> Terry Eagleton uh, argues the opposite, actually, <laughs> that football is a conspiracy to divide the British working class uh, and to... Uh, you know, make it think of itself uh, in terms of team loyalty rather than class loyalty. So I think, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I suppose both of those things are good, good, good things we think about. I mean, I think what why I wanted to talk about football is because um, I've, as a, a long, long term football fan and someone who for at least the last 10 years has been really interested in politics has never really thought about these two things together. Uh, and actually over the over the last sort of um Oh, well, over this COVID period, I'm not necessarily saying it's related, actually, but a lot of political issues have flared up around football. Of course they have. They did. I suppose they did through Black Lives Matter with the Colin Kaepernick stuff and um, in the American football scene. And then over here more with, um, you know, what's been going on. But I, I find this, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of ways in which football and politics seem to have sort of reconnected or, or, the, or the connections between them have, have become more visible over this period, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of them is, um, is I mean, this, this thing with Maradona, I, I think it is, it is quite controversial, actually. I think it's quite strange. I mean, that he's, I mean, you know, usually, as you guys know, I'm, I'm pretty much against cancelling anyone. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite um, bothered by, or, or at least a little bit worried by, this sort of blind faith in this kind of, these boomer figures like Gaza. And, uh, you know, Gaza uh, is the British Maradona, and he's also been accused of sort of sexual assault and things like that. And it's, it's strange how blind people seem to be publicly about those things and, and how rare it is that that's actually getting flagged. So I'm actually going to push back on that a little bit because I think that I think the focus on the problematic aspects of Maradona have been is been at least in the U.S. press uh, the real focus. I think that those things only come to light really when a politician, when a, well, not a politician, but when a, uh, a football star, basketball star, football star, American football star, when they start talking about politics that are left of center, that's when these problematic things become problematic. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's true too. And I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, as, and I suppose that um, this is part of the issue with the the Marcus Rashford thing. I mean, as much as I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, there's two there's two Man United um, players who have been um, 
praised in the news in uh, or and or criticised in the news recently. That and I'm a, I'm a Man United fan myself, and you know I, I think this Marcus Rashford thing, the British. I mean, it's interesting what you say, David. The British media have not actually focused on the negative aspects of Maradona's career at all. It's basically been blind celebration. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's interesting that there's a difference there. And it's not really the one I would have expected. Um, yeah. So actually, I'm going to give a I'm going to posit a, a theory about that. I think that in, in this is the from the outside looking in as an American, as I would say, um, I think that in in the British press, you could actually ascend to something that's closer to royalty. And I think Maradona has, has reached a level of fame that allows him to, to walk around with a, a Saville level, level of impunity. And I think that yeah. that's, that's why what happens there. Whereas in the States, they, you know, anything that is foreign shall be forbidden. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite right, David. And, and, and like, I mean, it happened. It's, I, mean, I compared Maradona to Gaza, the, the British version as a player, but also this, this applies very much to him. I mean, he's a alcoholic misogynist who, you know, um, has been accused of a number of sexual assaults and so on. We're well, not accused. I mean, he's done them. He's been found guilty of him, but um, but also he's got this level of, of thing, and, and there's this amazing story. I don't know if you guys know the story of Raoul Moat, the Newcastle serial killer, and Paul Gascoigne. It's it's fucking amazing if, if you Go don't on. know it. Yeah, okay, yeah. well you're in you're in for a <laughs> bloody treat here. So basically, when there was a serial killer on the loose in Newcastle a few years ago, um, the police couldn't really. The police had worked out where he was, and he was shacked up in a in a little um a little sort of bungalow in the middle of a forest in the forest of some some old somewhere outside in the rural area in, in the outskirts of Newcastle. And so, um, you know, there, there was a sort of standoff, really. He was in there with a couple of shotguns, whatever. Um, and then um, Gaza turned up on the scene and he rings the local Newcastle radio station and says, oh, it's Paul Gascoigne, you know, and I'm here to sort of solve the problem. Um, and he's drunk, he's coked off his head and he's, he's sort of turned up with a, a chick, a bucket of KFC a signed Newcastle United shirt. And uh, he sort of thinks, you know, and he, he's, uh, he's got, I think he had something else. He had a fishing rod and a dressing gown. And he said, I brought these gifts for it, for Raoul Moat, this serial killer. And uh, I'm going to talk him down. I'm going to talk him down. I'm going to be the, the negotiator of this one because I'm Paul Gascoigne, you know. And it was it was absolute chaos. It ended up with uh, policemen getting shot and getting blinded and, uh, you know, Gaza just roaming about this this area. And, and yeah, it was not one, there was not one criticism, really. I mean, everyone laughed and said, oh, Paul, Ga Paul Gascoigne, Paul Sod, he's got too high and called in a radio show and thought of his ego and stuff. But nevertheless, we just absolutely idolised this guy and everything he does, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's like inappropriate behaviour towards a young woman Woman on a train or interrupting a police investigation towards a, of a serial killer you know it's it's um you know it's it's mental we we have just decided as a nation this person is above is above the law uh, and above the judgment system and everything can be forgiven with with gaza and i think that's exactly what's happened with, with maradona which is pretty interesting um but yeah Sorry, go on. Go on. The thing I think that's interesting is the focus on the cocaine. Um, given that, you know, I think every time they talk about Maradona, they talk about cocaine. And now that, you know, I think that's that's a just a, you know, a, a function of being a famous person in South America in a certain milieu um, that, you know, cocaine was involved. There was a lot of funding of uh, of teams and sports players behind the scenes in a patron kind of way. Um that buy coke dealers and and cartels and that was like a, a fun, you know i think if anyone has seen this show narcos uh, you can see that like as a fundamental part of of you know how the 
the industry worked and, and just how the culture worked in many ways because of the, the, the political conditions that caused material conditions there. Um, now, I think it's very hypocritical for the American press to focus on the cocaine aspect when, you know, we all know at this point that cocaine is was as profitable as it was and was essential to culture because of the CIA and because of, of the American government. And I think that uh, without mentioning that as part of the stories, I think that that's, that's there's almost an implicit racism uh, mm. involved. But I think there's something, I'm, I want to say something about this sort of football and racism as well, actually. And I think there's something about this, what we, what we were saying about Gaza and Maradona, which applies to Marcus Rashford. And it, it, like you're saying, denies the kind of class politics of these things. Like, so right now in the UK, during this coronavirus, we've had Marcus Rashford lobbying for free school meals. You know, this Man United's young black Man United centre forwards lobbying for free school meals. We're, we're celebrating this so much. And, and, you know, we've lost sight of the fact that, you know, it's a depressing situation that we need this kind of footballer-led philanthropy because we've had such a state which is not able to sort of feed working-class children. And Mar Marcus Rashford, as a working-class Manchester boy, um, you know, has been heralded as this hero uh, precisely to hide uh, another issue. And I also have this suspicion about the celebration of major football figures in this way, that there's, there's always something else. It's like, a you know, a displacement or a distraction from the real issue. And, and the other thing that's flared up this week, which I, I think is a bit more of a niche football topic, but no doubt some of our listeners will have some, something to say about... Um, about football um but um but uh you know is this what's happened with edinson cavani at manchester united so basically what's happened um it, this week is a a big kind of saga around whether edinson cavani has been racist and what he's done is he's retweeted uh, he's tweeted something which um uh uses a colloquial uruguayan phrase uh, he's a 33 year old uruguayan football player who's been in the uk for three months um and uh, the phrase translates to something like uh thank you black um, and he's he's used this to a friend that's a close friend of his who congratulated him on his performance uh, in the last um, football match, right? Um, and uh, in the UK, um, people have have, have um, uh, compared this to a big, big saga that was a huge news here in football uh, about three years ago when Luis Suarez, another 33-year-old Uruguayan forward player, uh, <laughs> aggressively called uh, a Manchester United player, Patrice Evra, a very racist term on the pitch. And um, the UK media have, have absolutely equated these two events. Um, and they are very, very different things because one has intent where it was aggressive, it was a criticism, it was a racial slur deployed aggressively against the, and, 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 the, and that's the, the previous incident that happened three years ago. And this incident, is, it's not the same term, but it's a, a different racist term used mistakenly and affectionately in a very different way. And I think, I think both are wrong. I'm not going to defend either of these things. But the, the way it's really interesting to me, the way that the whole of the UK media has compared these two things as if they're the same thing. And it's almost like people have forgotten about the question of intent in you know, racial acts. It's actually much more about the policing of language, right? The word is wrong and therefore there's a flat punishment. And weirdly, this comes out more in football than in other parts of the law. It's like, well, it was an eight game ban for this person. So it's an eight game ban for this person. And it's, uh, it's really weirdly focused on the actual language itself instead of what was actually happened. That's Quite like a strict constructionism uh, sort of. I think I think one way that that sports can be reactionary is that this rulemaking sort of uh, of 
mentality. Uh, you know, that's a flag in football and in, in American football, or that's a foul in, in, in basketball, or, you know, that's a foul ball. You know, people get really fixated on rules and it allows people who don't get to make rules in their own life to focus on the interpretation of rules that they don't focus on how laws are interpreted or how court cases work of those sort of things that they're out of their own element. So, but in this instance, I think people get focused on these penalties because it's both an opportunity to punish someone who they admire and they could never actually bring justice to through their discussions. It's also a way to make things simpler. And if I, we, if I've learned one thing about the media here and in, in, in the UK is that they like to, they make dog food and they like to serve it again. And that's what they're doing here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think it's interesting. I mean, and I, th I think that um, this, this, this idea of seeing football as connected to politics to sort of try and bring these disparate points together. I mean, I know I've, I've rambled about Cavani and racism, Maradona and his, rep his reputation, and then Rashford and philanthropy. But I think the main point here is it's actually very interesting to look at football in a political way and, and see that these patterns, in some ways, these kind of patterns, these punishments, these rules, these regulations that are playing themselves out in the football world are actually incredibly important and connected to, to, to politics and the way we, we think those things through in a wider context. And, you know, this, this massive issue about football and racism is, 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 is a case in point of that, really. It's, it, football is the, the sort of playing field, no pun intended, on which we're playing out this kind of corporatization of Black Lives Matter, but also a distraction tactic from the actual issues. And it's, it's, it's all very visible there. And much more needs to be done, in my opinion, on football and race, for sure. And all my faith in you is gone But the heartaches linger on I think it's time. We've got Peter Hitchens in the room uh, from us in the Zoom, from uh, those watching the stream on YouTube and to our podcast listeners. A very warm welcome to you. Pleasure to be with you so far. Uh, <laughs> I, are you well, Peter? As well as could be expected. <laughs> um, we're a left-wing show uh, of uh, recovering uh, uh, traumatised Corbynistas, as I warned you on the phone. Yeah, um, so we take it as a mark of your, your characteristic intellectual largesse that uh, you, you're happy to come and join us tonight. How could I possibly have refused? <laughs> um, let's, let's get down to it. Your... Um, you, you, you're someone I, I sort of see in a, a kind of great tradition of conservatism, um, a, a man of the right who has mainly disdain for the actually existing party of the right. You began your kind of political career um, as a Trotskyist uh, and you campaigned for Ken Livingstone in the late 1970s, I gather. Quite unwillingly. Right, okay. Well, I, you're going to have to I, tell the story. I've no, um, done, done what I could to prevent it from being selected, but having done so, I suppose some vestige of my old Bolshevik democratic centralism impelled me to go out campaigning for him. I also knew he wouldn't win, so there was, no, was no great risk. <laughs> entertaining <laughs> okay. company. It was good to watch. It was beautiful spring weather in 1979 in, uh, out on the streets of Hampstead. It was quite fun to do especially in the, in the knowledge that he wasn't going to be the victor. I see. Well, it's good to have some explanation for that. Well, I mean, one has to, one has to sometimes cop up these truths. <laughs> um, I feel like we're, we're sort of oddly in a similar position uh, uh, in relationship to our respective parties. And uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you've, you've done many debates on stage where it's a sort of left versus right 
thing and all of our listeners know that there are there are many kind of keynote issues on which we are no doubt totally opposed to each other but i'm much more interested in the ways in which we may be facing similar political dilemmas i mean we uh as i say kind of former corbyn supporters are, are back to looking on the labor party as a kind of dreadful pale reflection of what we think a left-wing party ought to be and similarly you you've um yeah, as I say, you're, you're, you're the kind of conservative who, who saves your special venom, venom for the uh, Conservative Party. I wondered if you could tell us how you see the kind of current situation of the right and of the left, and how you see either your relationship to the right or, or indeed, you know, the, the faction that is, re, that is currently being squashed out of the Labour Party um, and how, how that relates to... Uh, how that relates to Labour? Well, gosh, it's complicated, but the, the, the simple heart of my proposition is that the border in British politics is now in the wrong place. Uh, the two supposed major political parties don't really oppose each other. Uh, they're mm. both, in my view, you won't share this opinion, but uh, I'll try and persuade you of it. They're both, in my view, Blairites, more or less Euro-communist formations. The Labour Party is in that state because it decided it to be, and because quite large numbers of influential members decided to take the Blairite course back in the 1990s. The Conservative Party is in that state because the Conservative Party, having no politics at all, uh, mm -hmm. simply adopts whatever the best protective coloration is available to get into office. And when Blairism was triumphant after 1997, what the Tory party did, it took quite a while to get around to it, was to turn itself into a Blairite party. And David Cameron was quite explicit about it telling a group of Daily Telegraph executives that he was the heir to Blair, mm -hmm. uh, while his, his, his compadre, uh, the, the, the awful chancellor whose name has just slipped my mind, uh, George Osborne, uh, he, he was going around calling Blair the master. Uh, they believed very strongly that these people had been politically successful, therefore they should emulate them. And they didn't just mean organizationally, they meant politically, the Conservative Party should, uh, should adopt pretty much the new Labour programme, which is one of uh, which I find completely fascinating. And I, the book that I wrote when I first started taking this whole matter seriously back in 1999, The Abolition of Britain, sets this out. What revolution is now about is not capturing the barracks and the railway station and the telephone exchange. The revolution is now about capturing the television studio and the university and the school and the newspaper office and capturing the culture uh, for a complete and very uh, bold and uh, astonishingly far-reaching cultural, moral and social revolution. That's what Marxism has now become and that's what my comrades back in the late 1960s and 1970s have largely turned towards. They've given up the, the old Bolshevik fantasies of seizing the Winter Palace in a, in, in a dramatic storming operation. Now, as I say, they, they, they seized the BBC and it's been much more successful as a result. It's one of the most successful revolutions ever, largely because so many people haven't noticed it. The problem with the traditional steam-powered left uh, is that, first of all, they're too obvious about what they want uh, in the way that Jeremy Corbyn or the, the old militant tendency were. Secondly, they haven't really understood uh, that actually they've been out-radicaled on the left. And Keir Starmer, in my view, is, more, is, is, is way to the left, and, and they're blessed himself was probably too dim to understand what he was doing. The Blairites were way to the left of Jeremy Corbyn. 
And so this is the part of what I'm saying you'll find so very hard to swallow, but it is actually true. Um, this, I think this is really fascinating. So uh, let, 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 let me just kind of push you on this a little bit. Um, you, you describe um, Blair as, as Euro-communist. And well, I, I said Blairism as Euro-communist. Blair, Blairism, yeah, sure. Blair, Blair himself, in my view, is and was Olympically dim mm. and probably never really fully understood what it was he was doing, though he is, interestingly, a former Trotskyist, something he only confessed to last year. Uh, and if he confessed to it any time before that, and particularly while he was anywhere near office, it would have been the most enormous story, as it was passed almost without anybody noticing except me. But it's fascinating detail of modern political history. But uh, Blair was apparently so enthused by reading Isaac Deutsch's three-volume biography of, of Leon Trotsky that uh, it changed his life. It, it comes as some, uh, it never ceases to come as an amazement to younger people who maybe came to the organized left because of Corbyn, um, the, it never come, never ceases to surprise us uh, quite how far-reaching former Trotskyism is in all parts of uh, yes. the top of uh, British public life. It's a major political force, just because just the word Trotsky sounds quite funny, uh, and there's something apparently rather unserious about it. People are underestimated. Another person who noticed this is not on my side of the political argument uh, was a guy called Peter Hyman, who was Blair's speechwriter at one point. Mm -hmm and then gave up politics and go back into teaching. But he said that the Blairite project was far more radical than anything Jeremy Corbyn could ever have come up with. And again, yeah. coming from people like that, and I, I had a good friend uh, called Philip Bassett, because I was an industrial correspondent for a long time, and, and Philip uh, was a very left-wing person, and he was, uh, shortly before Blair came into office, he was, he was gathered up into the Blairite operation and became uh, part of the machine. And he said that we had a farewell lunch because we realized that this meant we probably weren't going to have much to do with each other afterwards which we didn't but he said you have no idea uh, how profound and extensive this project is and he, he knew what he was talking about this this was a really extraordinarily uh, carefully worked out a major political social and economic revolution in the country uh, which is which has transformed it beyond all recognition from where it was before I think we probably wouldn't disagree actually on the um, the radicalism of <clears throat> of Blairism. I mean, the the uh, the German uh, uh, Marxist Walter Benjamin described revolution as a putting on of the brakes, uh, yeah. and uh, I, I suppose a lot of us saw Corbynism in that light that we were putting the brakes on. Um, what for us was a um, well was an acceleration of neoliberalism. So for, I guess this is maybe the, the difference of, of concept between us, that we see Blairism as the acceleration and the normalization of Thatcherism. That, that's the true moment where there is no alternative. Whereas you, you see it as, as, some, as something different, I think. I think you presumably think uh, Margaret Thatcher was conservative. Uh, which I absolutely do not, and she was in, in economic terms most definitely liberal, and in her social policies she was highly liberal as well. In fact, her, her, her much admired father, the great Alderman Roberts, who she would never stop going on about, he was a liberal Alderman of, of Grantham Town Council, and that was the tradition she came from. She was never a conservative, and it, any more than was Ronald Reagan, who had grown up as a New Dealer and a Roosevelt enthusiast. These people were not of the traditional conservative right as most people understand it. And uh, there's a huge amount of time is wasted by people who think that they, 
they were conservative. What I, I tend to see the modern world as the hideous love child of Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping. Uh, neither of them, either conservative or or socialist in the sort of rather Edwardian terms in which I see both of those uh, formations, uh, but both of them actually tending towards uh, a rather interesting, uh, I suppose the word synthesis was bound to come in sooner or later, a rather, a rather interesting combination anyway, because what, <laughs> again, there was an awful lot of stuff at about the time that Antonio Gramsci's name started to be talked about among my yeah. comrades back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, there was also an awful lot of stuff about the young Marx and the Grundrisser and all that stuff. And what people were really discovering, I think, was the, the Marx who, who really admired, of all things most, uh, the French Revolution of 1789 and the Paris Commune of 1871, uh, which of course are completely free of all the uh, economic uh, ideas which then came to take over what was the social democracy, particularly German social democracy in the late 19th century, and which also obsessed the Bolsheviks. And much more, again, social, cultural, moral, religious positions, uh, much more about that than about economics. And I think if you, if you can understand that, that, that revolutionary politics has gone back to 1789 and, and decided 1917 was a mess, uh, then you begin to see what's going on. Hi, Peter. Um, I, I am interested in what you just finished on, actually, but um, I wanted to um, go back to what you'd said about um, Thatcher not being conservative. I think there's something really interesting here. Um, I think that um, perhaps there's a perception that the left sees Thatcher as the emblem or embodiment of the conservatism that they hate. Uh, and perhaps that was part of um, your comment there where you where you sort of implied that, oh, we, we, would, um, we would think, uh, we wouldn't, we'd find it surprising to hear that Thatcher was a liberal rather than a conservative in your mind. But I wonder if actually part of the reason why the left, or we, hate um, Thatcher is because it seemed to segue liberalism and conservatism together. And, and actually, the reason why Thatcher's reign was so bad is not so much because she was the extremist kind of conservatism, but because it was a start of a sort of um, uh, channel um, yeah, then, you know, I, I sort of get the point that Thatcher's not remotely conservative, but isn't this start, isn't this Thatcher era the start of a merger between the sort of liberals and the conservatives, which has left the left so alienated? And why that is maybe why Thatcher is such a figure of hatred for the left rather than because she's, we think she's conservative or not. Is, is Thatcher Tony Blair's mother? That's what I'm Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a better, David. That's a much more concise way of putting my typically rambling question. Thank you. Well, a, a bit, but the, the parents of both, of both Blair and Thatcher are, 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 are really are the, the end of the Cold War. That's what, that's what makes them both important. If, if Thatcher's period from 19... Uh, 1979 to to 1990 is obviously significant in terms of the, of the considerable mess she made in large parts of the country uh, and all kinds of other things which she did. But it, she's ultimately her, 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 her the way in which she became categorised after she'd been removed from office had a lot more to do with the transformation of, of politics and discourse after the end of the Cold War than it had to do with what she'd done. Also, much of what she'd done wasn't really planned. I don't think that she really had much of an idea of what she was going to do when she set out. Um, but Blair, Blair was completely uh, the, 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 the child of, uh, you might say, the child of Gorbachev. 
uh, because until the Berlin Wall came down, until the Soviet threat was dismantled and people could no, lo no longer associate uh, left-wing politics with effectively consorting with the main national enemy, uh, until that happened, the left couldn't escape from very, very tight confines. Once that happened, the left uh, was, was completely liberated, as Gramsci had long wanted it to be, I should say, from the, the albatross of, of, of the Kremlin hanging around its neck. And the, the way in which the left then very, very rapidly became the dominant force in culture, broadcasting and the university was, was, was a sign of that. Flasher, I didn't do, uh, I challenged people on this, didn't do a single socially or morally conservative act during her entire time in office. She, it was confusing that she was herself the sort of person who you would expect to have conservative opinions about such things. But as prime minister and as head of government, she didn't do anything uh, to suggest that she cared about them very much. And the, the married family, for instance, which sustained huge attacks under the, the Wilson government, particularly the, the liberalization of divorce to an amazing extent. She did nothing about that. Uh, she did nothing at all to reverse any of, of Roy Jenkins's uh, liberalization of the, the criminal justice system or the police uh, or the prisons. What or, about Section 28? Absolutely nothing at all. So if she'd been a conservative, those would have been targets. And she also was, although she, she made a, a point of expressing regret about it, she did nothing at all to rescue state education from the comprehensive system, which uh, is amazingly destructive of conservative values. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Paul is in, the, is in the chat raising Section 28 as a possible example of Thatcher's uh, cultural conservatism. But um, as well I, as that... I, I must answer that because it, yeah. the, it, it's mm. the only thing anyone can ever think of, but it was never mm. activated. Mm. It was never a prosecution under Section 28 in, in, in all its history. How... How would you differentiate that from um, the the procedure of Blairism then? Because you, you describe it as this force that transformed public life uh, into uh, a, a a kind of left entity, a, a left identity, a left flavor kind of uh, taking over all of these institutions. Um, I guess my question would be, what, what's left wing about it? Well, as I say, it's left wing in that in that it's um, it, it's it's hostile to a particular idea of what society should be like, which is based most fundamentally upon a fairly weak state, a limited government, uh, and a uh, a with one of the principal counterbalances to state power being a very strong family life, a very strong private life in which people can exist independently of the state. That's to me uh, actually the, the, the crucial hinge on which it all swings. And what had been happening in, in, in cultural terms and in, uh, in, in, in particularly as a result of the Jenkins revolution, which was never in the Labour Manifesto and was in many cases done by private members bills in the 1960s, was a was an undermining of the strong family and a change towards a society in which the family was weak, marriage was weak, and inevitably the state became stronger as it has done. Uh, and also, of course, the, the very powerful egalitarian drive, and by egalitarian, I don't mean equality of opportunity, I mean equality of outcome, which was particularly contained in the comprehensive school revolution, was probably the most underestimated 
uh, change in British society of the, of, of the period, uh, which was entirely and was designed by its inventor, who most people have never heard of him, Sir Graham Savage, uh, entirely an egalitarian political project uh, with known educational disadvantages pursued for political reasons and remains, you, you will notice, an almost article of religion for the Labour Party. One thing it will never ever even consider speaking about is the idea of reintroducing selection by ability in state schools, no. uh, at least uh, at least on, in, in, an, in an overt way. And it's managed to persuade the Conservative Party to adopt that position. That was um, that was, if you like, the new clause four of, uh, of New Labour. But these things had all been going on in local government, in education, in publishing, in the intellectual world for many years. Uh, there was a huge frustration among the intellectual classes during the latter years of the Thatcher government. Why was it that left-wing ideas were in power in the culture, but they weren't in power in government? And the, great, the reason for the great explosion of delight among the left in 1997 was that finally the culture and the political system were marching in step with each other. Whereas we look back on that now and see the cultural revolution, the Gramscian cultural revolution that you describe as having been so successful, we would tend to see that as the kind of apologetic fig leaf and a kind of uh, tokenism covering over a continuation of the radical let's call it Whigism rather than conservatism well, of Thatcher and, and a, 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 a way in which inequality only increased, um, like the erosion of uh, labor rights only increased. So I, I, I guess that, that's the difference, that whereas you see a, a, a left that was culturally strong, we see that as almost the apologetic kind of, uh, you know, happy clappy cover for actually a very brutal uh, regime, which certainly did lead to the kind of growth of the illiberal states uh, of, of the kind that you described. It has, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, but speak, speaking as one of the losers by this arrangement, I, I, I can't tell if, 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 if what if that was what you wanted, you, you shouldn't complain so much, you know how lucky you are. If it wasn't what you wanted, you should have said so. Uh, but the certainly the, the cultural revolution in, in terms of family life, education, uh, the death deference, uh, the uh, and all the other and the almost completely complete marginalisation of Christianity in, in culture, law, and education have been amazing achievements for those who, as I say, still or have rediscovered uh, the revolutionary fervour of 1789-1871, which is what I think has come back. You have to set aside the whole era of of uh, trade unionism, of, of social democracy, and in, in, in Eastern Europe, of the Soviet regime, and realize that what's, what's happening is a, is, a, is a revival of a different sort of left wing, which is much more interested in the cultural, moral, and sexual revolution than it is in those things, and also actually doesn't much care about the economic, uh, the economic position of the poor. Let's bring this up to the, the sort of the, the big cultural and economic issue of, of, of our immediate moment. The question of uh, states' response, uh, responses to COVID-19. I think that this is um, uh, an issue where initially the fault lines between right and left weren't perfectly clear. I think of Telegraph columnists saying that, you know, selfish millennials won't consent to lockdown you know, to save their grandparents, they're too selfish and will want to go out. I think even Nigel Farage was arguing for um, a, a massive state response 
to uh, uh, locking down over COVID initially, but it, it didn't take long for the kind of standard right-wing position to be relatively libertarian and for the liberal left anyway position to be in favor of um, the strongest kind of lockdown response. You're someone who right from the start and very consistently has been arguing against lockdowns and even against masks. Um, again, I don't necessarily want to have a, a sort of debate about this. I, my motive is more that I think that, um, for reasons I, I maybe say in a moment, I, I think that there are ways in which the, the left is possibly starting to see the downsides about a lot of the ways in which this was managed and ways in which their initial analysis might have been, uh, in some ways, naive anyway. So could you tell us your, your position on lockdown and kind of where it comes from in your wider program. Hmm. I, could I first of all say that I, I dislike intensely, uh, there are two words sometimes used to describe me, which I will specifically reject on this occasion. One of them is contrarian, mm -hmm. uh, which suggests that I've taken my position as some sort of game, uh, rather than because of this, this, this serious objection. The other is libertarian, which elevates liberty uh, to a principle which is nonsense, as Karl Marx rightly said, no man fights freedom, he fights at most the freedom of others. And it's, it's, you can't elevate liberty into a, into a principle of operation, it simply doesn't work, and I don't do that. I'm, there are definitely occasions when I'm very much in favor of, of authority, and I ultimately I, I strongly believe in the rule of law. Uh, and the rule of law means that people have to restrain themselves quite a lot, but I'm much more in favor of self-restraint than a strong state. But the reason why I, objected to it was twofold. One, a strong instinctive uh, feeling that something had gone seriously wrong here. And I've learned over time to trust my instincts on such things as these. Whenever I've ignored them, I've regretted it. And the other was led by instincts, very easy uh, researches which one could make uh, into the past of Imperial College, which from which the, the, the main pressure uh, for the uh, the, the particularly the, the units producing the modeling and, and from there the main pressure for some sort of radical measures was coming a uh, very interesting thing in article by the way in um i think spikes this week by um by christopher snowden on the actual birth of the idea which led to lockdown which is a fascinating read and contradicts a lot of what people think and that led me also into to discovering the existence of the extraordinary Professor Sutrid Bakhti at Mainz University in Germany, uh, a, a very great specialist in microbiological medicine, who had made prophetic speeches and, and written prophetic articles about the terrible effects which is a shutdown strangling the economy would have, particularly on the healthy old, uh, but also on society in general and the, and the economies of advanced nations which seemed to me to be highly intelligent and not even to be being heard. And also the work of Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University, who was pointing out that the, the estimates of the actual, the, 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 the true fatality rate of COVID were gravely exaggerated. And that was what I put forward from the start. I, the case that I assembled was, was rooted in a, an instinct that something was going seriously wrong here, which I was, I was frightened by. And secondly, by the research which that stimulated, which confirmed my fears that the mistake was being made. It took me a while to understand that whether it was intended or not, and I don't think it was, uh, the thing actually 
has been for some time quite a major threat to two things. Uh, one of them are prosperity and stability of society, and the other to liberty as such, the liberty of the individual, uh, which are both things I think anybody, whatever their politics might be, should value. And what I've been trying to do, and I'll, I'll coalesce with practically anybody, apart from actual Nazis about this, uh, I, is, is, is to make this point that to, to save our society from social, political, and economic disaster, people of good sense have to combine against this. And we have to once again have an opposition because the other frightening thing about it was the unanimity, which you mentioned. I was pretty much entirely on my own in this regard. Parliament was united, there was no opposition. The media were united, the academy was united, the judicial bench had nothing whatever to say about it. And bit by bit, uh, I and those who've taken up this battle have now created, I'm rather pleased to say, uh, after the, the vote in Parliament yesterday, something resembling an opposition in a country which ought never to be without one. But that's, that's how it came about. I've never seen it as a left-right issue. There, there, are, there are disturbing things about uh, all my life, whatever I've thought about its politics, which is the Guardian newspaper I had regarded as a kind of ally of human liberty and a, a scourge of in, injustice and, of, and of, uh, of overbearing government, and also an opponent of stupid wars abroad. Now I find that on almost all those issues, this, 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 this paper with its long, long history, uh, of being all those things, now it turns out to be government toady in the Warmongers Gazette. What does one do when the left undergoes a transformation? Well, I, I, I think that uh, Corbynism broke a lot of brains at the Guardian, frankly. Uh, you may be yeah. right. I Some agree. of them were really badly damaged already. Mm -hmm. uh, David, you, can we bring you in? So I, you know, I have so many questions about this, and I, and I, I want to really sort of merge two questions. Really, is that the first question is? What aspects of the UK experience do you think, and I, not to make you a comparativist by any means, I know, I know that you, you focus on what you focus on, but what do you think that they're doing better elsewhere uh, in these lockdowns if, they are, if you're, they're doing them better anywhere else? Um, and additionally, and this is going to be the question afterwards, and I want to ask you because we're talking about Margaret Thatcher and she's becoming back into the fold. Um, I wanted to ask you about her position on apartheid and has that aged well uh, or was it just a condition of the time? Okay, who's doing it better? Well, personally, am I, uh, I've, I've thought that Japan has probably made a better fist of it than anybody. Japan mm -hmm. never actually shut down. Uh, it, there were various um, supposed states of emergency passed, but they don't have very much force in Japan because its constitution limits the government's central power in a way that uh, alas, doesn't happen here. And Japan's economy has suffered far less damage than ours. Uh, and the consequences of Japan's very light touch were not uh, hecatombs of deaths by any manner of means. Now, in fact, they, they, certainly in the beginning stage when I was studying this more carefully than I am now because it's moved on, uh, the number of deaths in Japan was startlingly low. The reason for this may lie not in what method they used or what method they didn't use, but in the, the much greater uh, levels of good health among the old in Japan. But there is a fascinating thing if you study every major country and even different states in the United States uh, and try and find a congruence between the stringency and severity of shutdowns and the level of deaths, you can't find one. It doesn't exist. Uh, and the, it's constantly presumed by, by politicians and indeed many media people in this country and I think in the United States as well, that it is a given. Uh, that if you shut the, the economy and society down, you'll save lives. But it's not a given. And uh, 
I've never seen any evidence for it. I think people should question it more because it's, it, it, if we could start from first principles and say, has any of this been worthwhile? Uh, we might get further with the argument than we do. Uh, I hope that answers those, that question. Um, you asked about Thatcher and, and South Africa. My view on that is very much influenced by what was told to me by Robin Rennick, who was the British ambassador in South Africa at the crucial time. And uh, he, he said to me that uh, Mrs. Thatcher had pretty much sent him there to be the ambassador to Nelson Mandela and to, to, to bring about, as far as possible, the peaceful end to the apartheid system. And she was, for whatever reason, uh, pretty dedicated to that policy. Uh, she was not, uh, in his view, uh, nor ever had been, uh, a, a defender of the apartheid state or of South African nationalism. And that's not particularly surprising. I mean, you go back to Harold Macmillan, the, there's been really since the Boer War and the end of the 19th century, considerable hostility between the British establishment and indeed the Anglo population of South Africa uh, and the Afrikaners who were really the, the, the ones among whom Grand Apartheid originated. So there's no particular reason why you should expect Britain to take a, a sympathetic attitude towards apartheid. It was never a British plan, uh, nor was it supported by the United Party at the beginning when the United Party, the National Party was still more or less evenly matched when it was being cooked up by Milan and the rest of them. So the British interest was in was global, but my own my own view of it has been for a long time that it was that it was a, uh, like so many other things a side effect of the Cold War. As long as as long as the the likely outcome of the collapse of the apartheid regime would be effectively a pro-Soviet regime uh, in South Africa, then no Western government was going to allow that to happen. But as soon as the Soviet Union was out of it, then there was no reason why Western government should should bother even remotely trying to prop up. Uh, the, the National Party or Apartheid many for. I think a major way in which um, the uh, kind of response to COVID in Britain has been um, made so difficult and um, has necessitated lockdown, if, 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 if we accept that way of putting it, um, has been, first of all, uh, the like sheer inability of the country to effectively bring in regular testing and, and re reliable testing, the extent to which these contracts have been given to uh, sort of friends of friends of cabinet members um, and to companies with no kind of history or background in, in delivering those services whatsoever, but also a kind of more structural problem in the country going back to the Blair years of the the kind of dismantling of any kind of coherent core of the NHS um, and a well the, the introduction of the internal market which meant that actually the system is not able to act as one as, as, a, as a pandemic of this kind demands. So I guess um, like what a sort of left like position that was critical of lockdown might begin from an argument that actually there are big structural failings in the country, which if those failings weren't there, then we would never have even needed to think of a lockdown. I, I wonder if you see any kind of like broader, like part of Britain's recent economic history, or indeed anything particular about this present government that has made like a Japan style alternative so difficult to argue for in Britain. Well, I, I, 
I'm in favor of there being a national health service. I think it's essential that something of the kind exists. The, the difficulty is what kind of organization it is and how anything which is necessarily that big can be effectively managed. There's certainly no enthusiast for, for internal markets, which seem to me to be dogma-driven rather than, uh, rather than experience-driven or, or, or even practically useful. Uh, we all know, I think, from our individual experiences, how, both how good and how bad the NHS can be. And it can be in the, on the same day, both of those things, uh, because of the, the high quality of its medical staff and because of the appalling quality of its bureaucracy uh, and its general disorganization. It's, it, but my, uh, on the Japanese thing, my own enthusiasm has long been uh, for a service which was much more preventive. And uh, uh, for instance, the taxation system, which rewarded those people who, who did basic things to, to maintain health. Uh, which most people don't do. I, my local hospital is, has two concentric rings around it. Uh, one of people smoking who aren't allowed to smoke on the premises and the other of car parks. Uh, and these are two things which people do, uh, which undoubtedly smoking and driving uh, to excess, which undoubtedly bring them to the hospital at the end of their lives. You know, these are things which, in my view, could be discouraged. More people should ride bicycles, more people should walk. We should design our cities, our transport system to create that as well. I'm much more interested in those things than in, in, a, in a repair system which waits until people fall ill uh, and then tries to patch them up with varying degrees of competence and success. So it's a di I would have a different approach anyway. And one of the reasons why, why Japan, uh, almost certainly one of the reasons why Japan has suffered less from COVID-19 deaths among the old is that obesity is extremely rare in Japan. There's very strong social pressure against it, as friends of mine who've lived in Japan will have told me, and you probably know. And it just simply is not the same problem that it has here. And it's the many, many of the COVID deaths, uh, both among people who are, who, are, who are old, but also among people who have got uh, serious pre-existing conditions, including uh, those associated with obesity and lack of exercise. And these are things which we might have tackled. But the idea that that, uh, that this in any way would justify an ineffectual shutdown of the economy uh, doesn't work. It would seem to me if the left is, has a straightforward concern about this, uh, then on, on its simplest level, the threat to employment uh, mm -hmm. from these shutdowns is colossal. And people are, are either losing or bound to lose uh, jobs, which they will not be able to replace, and which will leave them in the hands of a welfare system, which we all know is wholly inadequate, and if, if I were on the left, I would be making, if I were anything to do with the Labour Party, I would be refusing to buy this and saying these, these measures are disastrous uh, for our constituency and that they, they, should be, that they should not be undertaken on this, these totally inadequate levels of evidence uh, as a result. I mean, I just, I just, as, I, as I keep on saying, there is no evidence that these measures actually do any good. The idea that you could suppress the, the transmission of viruses is medically absurd anyway. But the, the idea that, that shutting down the economy will, will actually save lives is unproven. And what is undoubtedly proven is that when you shut down the economy, you lose lives uh, by strangling large parts of the NHS, by putting people off seeking medical treatment, by delaying uh, treatment for, for cancers and heart disease, which would otherwise save lives. And also by simply making people miserable in very large numbers, which is extremely bad for health. And the other thing which would be extremely bad for health is the the greatly increased poverty and unemployment which will follow these events, which invariably are associated with bad health among their victims. Uh, so I would say that.
A, clo a closing question, um, Peter, would be would be this. You referred to yourself as having um, uh, started off a sort of lone voice in criticising the rationale for lockdown and now feeling like you're, you are part of a sort of unofficial opposition. And, you know, even if uh, listeners you know, are critical of the arguments you've made, I, th I think you're quite right that the alternative case should be made on its own terms. I wonder if you could describe to us what, from within, the anti-lockdown kind of campaigning movement looks like. I mean, it's been very interesting to see how the experience of sporadic lockdowns has produced certain kind of unexpected kinds of political expression. And that's taken place both on the left in the form of Black Lives Matter protests, but also um, uh, on the right with uh, QAnon and the uh, Save the Children uh, kind of uh, uh, conspiracy theorist marches. And then this more politically ambiguous um, uh, uh, grouping of marches against lockdown. What does it look like inside and how is that being organised and, and where is the uh, momentum coming from with that kind there of campaign? Is no real, there is no real inside. There's very little organisation. Um, in some ways, perhaps as, as, as a former Trotskyist, I, should, I would wish for there to be more organisation, but I don't I know what, quite, what it would organise. Uh, I spend quite a bit of my time, or have spent quite a bit of my time, I'm simply pointing out that I have nothing to do with David Icke uh, or the people associated with him, for instance, because it, it's, it, I'm constantly faced with guilt by association smears suggesting that, that I, I believe in some wild conspiracy or that I'm a Trumpoid or anything of that kind, which I'm not. And I, it, I, it, it's not just that I, it would obviously be disastrous for my cause to be associated with such people. I don't like them. Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't share my opinions or my attitudes towards politics. And they're great believers in what I regard as an almost total waste of time, which is street protest, which I, I think achieves less than nothing. Though I'm hugely in favor of preserving the freedom to protest. Uh, and I think the police are behaving way beyond the, the powers which the government intended to give them. Uh, that's a different matter. I don't think these protests do any good, so I don't support them. I have never liked Toby Young. Uh, we don't get on when we meet. Uh, but on the other hand, I have to say that he's done an extremely good job simply in terms of providing a daily bulletin on lockdown skeptics for all of those who are interested in the very large numbers of particularly scientific arguments against what's going on, uh, which he presents on this, uh, on, 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 this, on this very interesting website, and that pulls some of it together. I don't imagine that Lord Sumption, the former Supreme Court judge, thinks much of me. Uh, but we have found ourselves speaking more or less side to side by side to the extent anyone can in this age when there are no public meetings on the same issues and regarding each other as allies. But there is no movement as such that I've come across. It's just mm. there are an awful lot of people who bit by bit are coming round to the view that this thing is a disaster, uh, who at the start uh, were moved, and I have to say by benevolence, they were moved by a belief that what they were supporting was good, uh, into supporting something which was bad. And I've gradually come to realize, partly because of the endless battering of people like me, but partly because of their own direct experience, that it isn't good and it's doing harm. And I think the, the, the problem is that the, the, the principal organs by which these ideas are formed, particularly the BBC, are wholly in the hands of government supporters. And there's a very large part of the population which isn't even aware there's controversy. They don't know that there is a significant number of scientists who disagree 
with government policy on COVID and on lockdown who have different ideas about how it could or should be controlled and what the limits of government power are. And these are highly qualified people, they have no idea. And at the moment, the main task of the, the, the opposition such as is, is to break out of that isolation and to actually create a situation where everybody's aware of the fact that there, there are at least two sides to this question and they both ought to be heard. Peter, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Um, that I'm going to give you the opportunity to be a gracious populist here. Um, what amount of the support for lockdown do you think is com comprised of people who can afford to work from home, who have positions that allow them to be remote, that they can work from safe environments that are outside of the what we call the danger zones, regardless of what you think about the actual danger of COVID? It, are limousine liberals pushing the lockdown? Oh, I don't know whether they're pushing it, but they're certainly content with it. And these are the people who in the summer I called the misted Chablis class. And there they are. They're sitting in their gardens with a, a misted glass of Chablis uh, watching whatever it is they like to watch on, on Netflix. Uh, while the world goes by, they don't have to do the, the tedious and expensive daily commuting they used to have to do. They're still being paid. Uh, any danger that there might be seems very remote from them. I have no doubt at all. Uh, that in that particular class and layer of society, an awful lot of complacency uh, exists, and they're not my friends. Peter, there are other issues that we, we want to address with you, but maybe we could save it for another occasion. Um, we'd maybe, like to thank you very much. Later. It's, it's, it's coming up to my bedtime, but um, <laughs> anything else you want to get in quickly, you take the chance. Who knows what might happen tomorrow? <laughs> um, well, we've got we've got a bit of a docket to get through, so we're going to say good nights and hope that you uh, you have a good rest. And we want to thank you for your generosity in coming on and uh, and describing your positions for us. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for thanks for listening. If you thanks, Peter. Thank you yeah. Thanks a lot, Peter. It's been good to hear from you. Cheers. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Okay, everyone. Are we? Uh, um, well, we've we've um, we've got through half an hour of Peter Hitchens at least. It was bloody interesting, I thought, and uh, much so, yeah. I, much I want to follow up on, but which we'll we'll probably do on Twitter. Uh, uh, but now I think we should probably um, think about uh, welcoming in uh, Paul Clark. Uh, is Paul in the? Is Paul in the Zoom? I think he is. I am. Hello, 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 Paul. Welcome so much. Uh, thanks so much for coming. And so Paul is is uh, part of this um, historic, really, lawsuit and is a, a friend of David. So I'll hand over to David shortly. But Paul's a barrister at um, Garden Court Chambers and co-founder of Global Legal Action Network. And he's kind of spearheading this case, really. That's a historic um, moment in the climate change situation across Europe. So um, how are you, Paul? And thank you for coming. Very well, thanks. And Are you thanks. in London? Yes, I am. Yeah. Oh, so and so so am I. Am I? Is anyone else? And it, so is Izzy. Yeah. So we're 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 some fellow Londoners here. Anyway, over to you, David, to uh, get into it with Paul. I, I just want to say that I just want to uh, everyone should thank us for the mellifluous baritone of Paul Clark. Uh, I, I I had the pleasure of meeting him for the first time before I actually met my wife. He was uh, She was staying at his house in London while she was giving a talk to the Materialist Lawyers Group. And it's uh, been a pleasure to get to know him over the years. Uh, I'm trying to convince Paul to come stay with us for a month this summer. So we're hoping that'll happen. But uh, yeah, I, I, past the personal adulation, I, I just want to say uh, what 
the Global Legal Action Network is doing is really excellent. Um, we want to just kick it off with the question of what is the Global Legal Action Network and what is this case you're pursuing right now? Because I think it's one of the most important cases that we've seen in about 50 years. Well, thank you. Um, I'll start with Glenn and what it is. It's, um, it was the product of a conversation over a few beers with two very good friends of mine, essentially. But the impulse that's behind it is the idea that it's possible to put into some kind of practical form, some kind of direct practice in the terrible legal profession form, the ideas that underpin critical legal studies and a more interesting version of leftism in legal practice than there tends to be in most parts of the, even the left bar, the left parts of the human rights movement um, and, 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 and mainstream practice generally. So it's, it's an idea, as many of the conversations that we've had in, among the kind of critical legal studies movement have ended in either disdain or frustration at the idea that it's possible to actually do something in practice because the legal profession and the law is part of the problem. So the idea behind GLAN is that in the, in, in the context or in the form of essentially, essentially a human rights um, advocacy and legal practice organization, that it could be motivated by these ideas which we think are more interesting and more fruitful than the usual part of even the left of legal practice. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I, I think one of the things I wanted to bring in, and that's why I was wanting to hear a, bit, a little bit about the history of GLAN, is that this case that, that we're talking about now, um, I want you to give a background of what the case is and sort of what the difficulties of bringing a case like this were, uh, because it's really important. So, um, and some of the procedures as well, because I, I think that the complexities are there, but I think they're really grokkable by people who are interested in and care about uh, climate change. Okay, so the the novelty of this case, well, there are several, but on its most sort of obvious from the outside, um, uh, in the most obvious from the outside respect, it's the fact that it's a case against, frankly, as many states as we could viably think of as putting together in an international forum, um, which has teeth. So the idea was that there are various aspects of the European Convention which are um, beneficial in terms of trying to get accountability and, and, and forcing change um, as regards climate change. Um, but it's also the fact that we wanted to pursue a case which really gets to grips with the reality of the problem. You know, straightforwardly, gas doesn't respect borders, you know, so greenhouse gases. It, it's in the nature of the problem that when damage is done by climate change, it's not possible to nail it down to one particular state. And this problem sort of turns into various different legal concepts. And those are seen in the various pieces of domestic litigation in the form of either disputes about causation or arguments that it isn't really a legal issue, it's a political issue, or arguments about the standing of the applicants. But in fact, they're all really the same problem which is that there's, there's this, frankly, the, the, the gas doesn't respect borders. So you can't trace the harm in the way that you, you generally would. So the idea was that we wanted to, to, to do something which changed the way that climate change is talked about in law because, because it's a, 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 an international problem, it tends to be seen as being more appropriate to be addressed through intergovernmental organizations, sorry, intergovernmental negotiations, treaties. 
But that always creates this bottom-up approach in the sense that, well, states are just saying, oh, well, we'll try our best, you know, we'll do the very best we can and all of that. And it obscures the straightforward problem that there's harm being done now. So the idea behind multi-state defendants in a single piece of, of litigation about a single small group of young kids in a particular area is that you take the harm and you work yeah. back to what the state so, so Paul I want to get to the sort of like human aspect of this and I, I think that just to give a little more background for our listeners is that uh, who are the applicants in, in this and you know I'm, I'm going to use American terminology because that's where my legal training is but who are the people who are who are, who are the sort of the plaintiffs here and what is their plight and why does it matter well it's the right terminology for the european court of human rights the applicants are a group of um <clears throat> six children and young people from portugal four kids sofia andre martim and mariana and two young adults um claudia and katarina and they're from two of them are from lisbon and the others are from an area called Lyria. Um, and they all know each other and they are, have already experienced absolute devastation in terms of their own lives, their family lives, and they're fearful of their future in a way that, I mean, it's worth watching what they have to say. So if you, on the, on the case website, youthforclimatejustice.org, you can see them all talking about what they're experiencing. In 2017, there were wildfires which killed people um, within, well, within, earshot eyesight of their own houses um, they're experiencing the obvious impacts on their education on their mental health um, i mean the list goes on and it's terrifying from their point of view i don't want to speak for them and the case in terms of the way it's been prepared is 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 very much about um, allowing or and producing a platform for them to speak more than it is about lawyers pushing them in one direction or another and it's worth saying this is a case which has been very heavily driven by them. Two questions I want to ask, and, and this, these are some of the criticisms we ran into today. Um, I saw some people saying that well-paid lawyers are pushing an agenda that should be better uh, suited for the sort of political realm. Yeah. As someone who, li who has uh, lived in Trump's America, uh, I, I can say that the, the political realm doesn't always suit the popular will or suit the needs of the people. What do you say about these, those people who say this is lawfare by the worst means and that we cannot address these issues, that we must address these issues through the political realm and not through the legal realm? Yeah, well, this assertion of politics is political in itself. And this is so one of the reasons why um, mainstream liberals will try to do a law politics division argument is well there are all kinds of reasons that are asserted i don't actually understand i'm sure david kennedy has some opinions on this well, well yeah they don't make <laughs> frank i can cut it i can cut to the chase with this none of them make any sense there's no distinction every single piece of adjudication is political the um the one of the things that people say about this is something like complexity right so this argument about causation and multiple actors is understood to lead to a complexity which is better addressed by the government but when you think of the, if, if your argument that you can't do shared responsibility through litigation, and then you think about if you're, I don't know, born in a particular part of East London in such a way that it's almost certain that at one point or another as a kid, you're going to become either in contact with a part of a gang. 
The idea of joint liability is something which is forced on you and very frequently leads to kids who are part of a group being convicted of murder as a result of effectively as, of, of their associations. Now, so this sounds somewhat tangential, but the, 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 the contrast between these forms of liability, which are structurally identical, this idea of joint liability among individuals and joint liability among states really gets to the root of the problem. States have traditionally resisted like it was the end of the earth, ironically enough, the, um, the, the, the idea that there might be shared responsibility between them. I actually think there's probably only one case in any jurisdiction, including the International Court of Justice to date, in which there has been genuine shared responsibility between these states. You can analyze all of them effectively on individual responsibility. Whereas if you're a disempowered actor, a kid in East London, the expansiveness of joint enterprise crime liability is immense. So there's nothing about adjudication which is, is resistant to this idea of shared responsibility. Yeah. It's this cover story. So, so Paul, what is so innovative about this theory of the case here? And what is left about it? Uh, because I think a lot of people think that lawsuits are sort of in this centrist sort of realm that are outside of politics. What is, what does it make, what makes this a left lawsuit and what makes it important in that way? Can I, I, yeah. Can I, can I just join in as well? I, 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 I was kind of, I was about to ask similar to David, but I, I found that really interesting comparison, Paul, although you were saying it sounds tangential, I was sort of thinking, you know, this is actually very telling that, you know, Joint liability, like you know, where in 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 places where yeah, there's a murder in a park and somebody was just associated with the group of people doing it, and you know, this is this is tried in a certain way. I mean, it, it's amazing that that would that would happen on that level so casually and so 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 concretely on a structural level, and then at the level of sort of na national government it wouldn't and it just seems like a class issue it seems like a huge class issue because it's like saying we have we try cases at the lower end of the class spectrum in this way and we try them at the the upper end when it comes to the big stuff in a completely different way so you know that i mean i don't know that it, it makes it seem like a very important case for the left well i'm glad you think so i mean my answer to what what makes it a leftist um piece of litigation is that frankly i, I probably don't think that on the face of it in terms of any one piece of legal work by a lawyer, there is such a thing as a leftist um, piece of litigation because the whole project is so um, challenged by the blind spots and biases of, of the neoliberal structures that it surrounds and upholds. But at the same time, I think the ex the, 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 something like GLAN is important because it's something about the impulse and the thinking and the, the tendencies of lawyers in practice that make a particular effort more or less um, leftist. I don't think, as I say, you can identify a particular project in litigation as, as either, as certainly not as, as particularly significantly left because it's also corrupted by, by, by the, the, the nature of law as, a, as an entity. But because GLAN is a group of people who are thinking about the fact that there are power imbalances like this and that you can see them when you're looking for them you know you, if you see for example the, the example you just referred to the fact that shared responsibility is so hard between states and so easy between disempowered kids then you can start to think through how you might be able to use that observation as a way of um, embarrassing the, the, the a, 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 a liberal institution into solving or con contributing to the solution of the problem yeah. yeah, I think 
I think that's fascinating. I mean, if you think about the idea of law is warfare, law is politics, that idea is so anathema to the liberal mind. Um, we must think that law is neutral. Um, it was very funny to see um, the upheaval in the United States about the, the recent Supreme Court ju justice appointments uh, as if law wasn't politics, as if when R Ruth Bader Ginsburg was appointed, it wasn't important what her politics were. We it, This idea that people arrive in these positions like separate of of their their commitments separate of their politics is ab absolutely absurd and the eu has done amazing job as someone who's like studied eu law worked on eu integration i find the eu is the most fascinating sort of realm of politics because it is the apolitical political it is something that makes the neoliberal mindset seem this is just what's normal this is what works this is how we do it and seeing that thread itself through all these things involving human rights, involving climate rights, all these types of things is fascinating. And seeing what you're doing at Gland to sort of cut those threads and expose the, the phrase and the edges, I think that's fascinating. Thank you. I mean, I'm glad you think so. Uh, but I have to say I was, I, I always am um, surprised by this assertion that you can just find the answer if you know enough of the laws. You know, my, 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 Mum and dad always thought that lawyers were people who just knew all the rules and were always appalled when I couldn't just tell them what the answer was about whatever. And the fact that it's it's never that from the beginning um, for, the, for the purposes of legal education. And then yet you're forced to do this performance that at the, at the absolute um, nadir of which you find Amy Coney Barrett repeatedly asserting this notion that she's she she is just going to look at the law and find the answer you know it's incredible it's i mean I, I, it's so incomprehensible to me and it's disturbing and it's i mean frankly i think one of one of the things that i find particularly beneficial about about glan is 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 simply in terms of maintaining your own mental health because you feel so frequently gaslighted by those types of ideas um which underpin the types of arguments that maintain the status quo and which are persuasive to judges that it's it's frankly just it's just nice to have some friends to work with it the most 1984 aspect i think of of political culture in the modern age is the idea that law is neutral and i think that that's so important what you're doing because we as people on the left need to understand that law is war and we are at it because the right knows it the Koch network knows it. The Federal Society knows it. And all of these barristers who, who work in right-aligned think tanks, they understand it as well. Yeah. And to take that example that you were referring to before about how this really should, you should just leave it to the politicians to deal with this. What that's saying is allow the power for power plays that, that come out in, in the Paris negotiations, et cetera, to just carry on. And you know, I think one of the things that's, that's particularly um, one of the, the, the ideas that underpins the way that this piece of climate litigation has been put together is this idea of climate change as a super wicked problem. You know, it's a, a phrase that was used about you know, five or 10 years ago by a group of political scientists. And this is this problem where time's running out, where those responsible for the problem are also responsible for providing a solution. And when the law is presented with something like that, it's completely and utterly powerless, it seems, unless there's some impulse and it's the it's a piece of litigation like this that we hope provides the impulse. 
Yeah, um, I, 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 it's amazing to hear about it, and and it's it's I think it's a massively important sort of reminder that um, that yeah the law. I mean, I guess I guess David has his connections through Heidi, uh, yeah, for to this how how the law functions politically. But it's actually really good to hear from people in who work in law who are, who are willing to kind of think about this in terms of left and right and how politics work. It's been absolutely lovely to hear from you, Paul, about all this. And, and where should we find out more about the case and what, what was the organisation we should be supporting and so on? Well, I'm happy to promote. It's the Black, Global Black, League Black. Backing Network. The um, case has a dedicated website, which is youthforclimatejustice.org. And contrary to the impression that this is all about well-paid lawyers, it's really, really not. Um, and we're, 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 we're desperate for the cash to pay for huge amounts of expert evidence. We have 33 states that we're going to prepare responses to now that the case has reached the stage in the court where the states have been ordered to respond to it. Mm. And so the workload next year is going to be brutal. And what we need is to be able to ensure that we have all of the expert evidence, which is in itself very expensive, um, ready and all put together. Um, and so the case is crowdfunded. You can find the link to the crowdfunding on youthforclimatejustice.org. Thank you so much, Paul. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you again. And um, everyone should go onto the website and, and fund the campaign. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for coming, Paul. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty much time for us to say goodnight, although we're following Paul's plug. Should we do a plug of our own? David, you're Absol going to do this. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and I want to say that that all the people on this this podcast are, are just lovely, but uh, there's only one who's going to make the pitch for the Patreon, and that is because I am a filthy American who it, insists that we have money to function and work and make this all work for you. Uh, I want you to go to Patreon.com, the Pop Show, Patreon.com, the Pop Show, where you can engage with our 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 deeper um our deeper archive there's multiple levels there we're going to be updating those levels soon with all sorts of new bonuses opportunities to engage with us opportunities to get one-on-one -on -one counseling at different levels you'll be shocked at the level of of, of support that we're going to provide to you when Certainly you provide shocked. the support to us and i'm going to be honest with you i am very excited for this future and I'm excited for this this uh, show, and I think we're going to do great. So please support us at patreon.com slash thepopshow. And on that note, guys, good night, and thank you for listening to The Popular Show, episode two. Good night, James. How are you? You ready for bed? I'm ready for bed. Good night, Izzy. How are you? You ready for bed, too? Very ready for bed. And good night, David. Good. Your twins must be very much ready for bed. Good night, Moon. <laughs> and thank you so much again to Paul and to Peter and to uh, all of you for coming and listening and we'll see you again next week on Wednesday at the various scheduled times. Good night everyone love to take these chains from my